Tonight on Farage, is Boris Johnson coming home from the USA empty-handed? I rather think that he might be. Calls for a European army grow stronger. What should the UK do? Do we engage or not? And on Talking Pints, I'll be joined by Francine Lewis, hilarious female impersonator. Well, our relationship with America, known by some as a special relationship, but whether it is or not, it's an important relationship, has been under considerable strain over the last few months. The Biden decision unilaterally to withdraw catastrophically from Afghanistan without any reference to us or, indeed, other NATO members. Uh, and when Boris Johnson makes an urgent phone call for it not to get returned by the US president for nearly 40 hours, showed you uh, that, in many ways, that relationship had been put into cold storage. Yet, out of the blue, towards the end of last week, we get the AUKUS deal, a very sensible deal. Australia, ourselves, and indeed the Americans, uh, coming up with a 21st century solution for the Australian Navy, unlike the 20th century, outdated, overpriced and out-of-time solution <laughs> that the French had put forward and about which they are now so angry. So Boris Johnson goes off to America with some bad news and some good news over the course of the last few months. But there's no question about what really mattered to him on this trip. In public, during the New York phase of this, it was all about climate change, of course. And he will feel that he's had something of a little victory because Joe Biden has agreed to pump more billions of dollars into a fund that gives money to poorer countries and helps them mitigate uh, the amount of CO2 they produce every year. But what about the big stuff? What about the things that really, really matter? Well, yesterday Boris Johnson went into the Oval Office and interestingly, it's the first time since he's been PM that he's been over to Washington DC and here he is sitting with Joe Biden talking about what's been achieved. Uh, it's great that the, the ban has been lifted on British beef and the, the people of the United States of America can eat British beef. And, uh, we're going to be working on lamb, too. And the lamb. We're working on the, we're working on the lamb, but to say nothing of the beef and the whiskey, which I already, I already mentioned. Well, the whiskey happened months ago, uh, indeed nine months ago. So I'm going to say this, Boris, where's the beef? <laughs> yes, you may be very happy that beef is not banned from US restaurants or indeed lamb either. Uh, but that is a very, very tiny part of our trade with the USA and what really matters. And it's worth you, the audience at home, just thinking about this. The USA is the biggest foreign investor in the United Kingdom uh, and, and they're pumping tens of billions into current proposed takeover deals. We are still the biggest foreign investor in the USA. This relationship matters. And a trade deal would take down tariff and perhaps some other regulatory barriers just to make that whole process a bit easier. There is not going to be a trade deal. Biden was actually dismissive of it. Uh, and indeed, when it comes to the Northern Irish Protocol and the terrible stresses and strains that's putting on the unity of the United Kingdom, again, Biden won't budge because he is basically the EU's man. Now, I have to say, that whole press conference was a complete shambles. There they were, with big, thick face masks. I mean, at times, it was almost inaudible. Uh, the American president appears to be completely incapable of delivering sentences without the whole thing being written in longhand, and he read it off his knee. Uh, and when Boris Johnson suggested a few questions from the press corps, uh, Biden's aides were doing everything they could 
to stop questions because despite the fact uh, that Biden is democratically elected, he doesn't think he needs to be held to account by anybody. It was completely and utterly shambolic. But from Boris Johnson's point of view, I think he left pretty empty-handed. And then today, just before Johnson boards the flight to come back to the United Kingdom, we get the stab in the back. And the stab in the back is Biden's announced a new strategic partnership with the European Union to deal and work together on vaccines going forward. So I've never been in any doubt at all that Biden would take the line that was taken by Obama in that famous speech he made here during the referendum. We are indeed, under this Democrat-Biden-led administration, very much at the back of the queue. Uh, and I think this is going to be quite a significant disappointment for the Prime Minister. But I have to say, at the end of the day, it's not really Biden I blame, because Biden has never liked the United Kingdom, and I've told people that for ages and ages. Trump, whatever you think of him, does like the United Kingdom. We could have done a trade deal at any point in time during those four years of the Trump administration. Indeed, I was in Trump Tower on the 11th of November 2016, just two days after the result had come through from the presidential election, and his top aides were all saying, this is terrific, we can strike a trade deal between our two countries. They really wanted to do it, but I'm afraid that the Conservative government dropped the ball with Theresa May as Prime Minister, and by the time Brexit was done, by the time we were free to do a trade deal, it was all too late. So I think it's a big disappointment, but please, am I being too harsh? Let me know what you think. Get in touch with me, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Well, joining me now to discuss all of this is Lord Jonathan Marland, a former Prime Minister's Trade Envoy and Chairman of the Commonwealth Enterprise and Investment Council. Lord Marland, welcome to GB News. Thank you very much. Very good to see you. The part of Brexit was that we wouldn't be tied just to the trade deals that the European Union conducted effectively on our behalf, but free to strike out uh, and, and to become global Britain. <laughs> and whilst nobody could criticise uh, the way in which uh, Truss uh, was able to take those old EU deals and, and, and put our stamp on them and indeed go out and do new deals with, with countries like Australia, but there's no question, is there, that a trade deal with the USA was considered to be one of the Brexit prizes? I think it was, but I've never thought a trade deal with the USA, despite your fantastic optimism, was going to be doable. I, okay, you get it agreed at, at, between Trump and Johnson or whoever it is, yep. but getting down is the US FDA, who are the most difficult organisation, as you well know, to deal with, you'll end up coming on the wrong side of the deal. So I always thought... Is that because of agriculture particularly? Or? Uh, it's because of agriculture, but also the incredibly protectionist approach they have to uh, American protecting America. And so I've always thought it was going to be nigh on impossible. In fact, I told the Prime Minister when he asked me, um, uh, and, uh, and this was being thought of, I mean, what we really need with America, as you know better than I do, is a services deal. That would really put the wind up the European Union. Absolutely. And actually is a far easier thing to do, is it yes, not? Yes, yes, I agree We're with agreed. That. No, look, I worked for two big American companies over the course of 20 years in commodities, you know, part of the financial services industry. Yeah, I know. Um, and I could see there were ridiculous barriers in the way uh, that could very easily be got rid of. But here's my point, uh, Lord Marlon. My point is this. Even if it was going to be difficult to negotiate this deal, 
under the previous administration, we would, there would have been goodwill on both sides to proceed. Effectively, what Biden was doing was kicking the can down the road. And what he's really saying is this. There won't be a trade deal with the UK unless there's one with the European Union as yeah, well. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I totally get your point, but you've got to couch this in a slightly bigger, bigger um, space. As you in, said so eloquently at the beginning, America, the biggest investor in the United Kingdom, mm. and we, it is our biggest outward investment. Yeah. So why do we need a trade deal if, we, if we've been buying and selling and... Uh, employing, <coughs> um, we were a big, huge employer in America. They're a big employer over here. I, I just, I've never sort of got hung up on this trade deal with America. You know as well as I do, trade deals need to be done when you have an unreliable counterparty. That's when they're fundamental. And the problem at the moment is we're doing lots of trade deals with very reliable counterparties. So I've never thought uh, this is important, and, and, and I think your facts you gave underline that actually trade with America is fantastic. Their buying businesses only yesterday oh, yeah. over here and oh. vice versa. Oh, so, I mean, they're confident. So I think, I think that... Their confidence then, in Britain is fantastic. Yes. And, and, and I, look, I understand the point that even without trade deals, business happens because if you've got the right product yeah. at the right price... But I do think in this particular case, especially financial services, and we're talking New York and London yeah, predominantly... Absolutely handed. Yep. Uh, but look at the whole scheme, the whole picture... The vital thing was that he got, uh, he got uh, Biden over to COP. Biden has agreed to that. I mean, mm -hmm. you might not see that as a very fundamental event, personally, but to a lot of people it's a very fundamental event. And getting him to that is absolutely key, and he agreed. I think the deal we've done with Australia on the submarines, which you've... you've, you've which, is, which is great news. Is great news. So, yes. you know, it's bookended by two very good things. In the middle, you and I would both agree that Northern Ireland is a problem. Yep. Biden's been, you know, consistent on this. I, I, I'm not entirely sure why, but he has been consistent on it for a very long time. Well, it's the mythology about... Totally, it, totally, totally. It's, it's this American mentality that somehow we've invaded Northern Ireland. Yeah. It's, it's historically inaccurate, it's wrong in every way, but, but some parts of the East Coast are still hung up with that idea. Yeah, and it's a big vote, of course, yeah. the Irish vote in, in yeah. America. So, yeah, I mean, it, I... I, I, I I don't understand why they want to interfere in that, by the way. And, uh, yes, he hasn't come back with a trade deal, but he didn't actually go in to get a trade deal. He's talked around the subject. The key was to get him to come to COP and to cement uh, a, well, a, 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 a greater military... On climate change, they're agreed. There's no <laughs> doubt about that, although, you know, if I was being rather cynical and we had longer, I'd say, well, without China agreeing, uh, kind of what's the point? You're really? right, you're uh, right, of course. Uh, but, you know, getting America there is... in that particular uh, uh, space is absolutely critical. Uh, and they've been negative about it for a while, rightly or wrongly, I'm not here to debate that. Um, but that was a very important thing. All right, Lord Marlon, who's giving Boris very much the benefit of the doubt. But, you know, I do understand that climate change and that giving lots of taxpayers' money from this country in America uh, to third-world countries to spend, I expect some of it will get spent dealing with climate change. I'm not sure where the rest will go, but then I'm very cynical about these things. Well, let's continue this debate, because joining me now is David Hennig, UK Director of the European Centre for International Political Economy. Good evening, David. Good evening, how are you? I am very well. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, Jonathan Marlon was making the argument that, you know, negotiating trade deals with America is not easy because they're often quite protectionist. And yet, 
You know, this was, wasn't it, one of the big hopes of the Brexiteer campaign is that, is that we would open up, uh, we'd ease restrictions with America. The point about financial services we've just discussed and how important they are to both of our countries. So, do you feel, as I do, that the Prime Minister is coming home not just empty-handed, but ultimately stabbed in the back by Biden now announcing a strategic partnership with the European Union on vaccines? I, 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 can say, I give you both sort of 50-50 here. Look, it's obviously a disappointment. Obviously, Boris Johnson wanted a trade deal with the United States. And frankly, obviously, he still does. And he's still laying it out there saying, I'm pretty desperate for this deal. Um, please, please put me at the front of the queue if you, if you have a queue. And so, yes, on that basis, he's being more creative to the United States or many others and said, look, trade deals, yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of hassle and they don't really deliver. We've got something rather more interesting. This is going to benefit us all. Let's get on and do it. Yeah. And I think it's that that we haven't okay. done. I, you know, let, don't get too hung up on the trade deal. Get yeah. hung up on have we really made taken advantage of uh, being on our own? We haven't yet. I understand that that's what really matters, but I do repeat the point that symbolism is important. Is it possible, David Hennig, in your view, is it possible that a way round this is that we join the America trade. We join up with Mexico, Canada and the USA, the old NAFTA, something that uh, some of us were floating as a concept 20 years ago. Could that be a way through this problem, or is it likely, even with Canadian and Mexican support, that America would veto that? I was trying to remember who was floating that idea before. It was you, there we go. Yes, yes, it um, was. It was I... a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> there, we, there we go. Right, um... I don't think the US are going to want it. And actually, I don't want it either because that's set up for to make sure that cars sold in North America are made in North America. Uh, it's back to the protectionist point. So I don't think it gives us a lot. Look, I take your symbolism point. You're right about that. Um, there is symbolism in deals. It doesn't have to be this a particular deal, but just in deals, yes, we need to be showing we are making progress and we need to be taking things to the US and saying, we can do a deal here. Look, we got the Australia, UK, US <laughs> yeah, um, sub submarine deal. So that that was that's hardly trivial, though we don't really know what's involved there. So I think we can get more. Um, I wouldn't see it in the direction of US, Mexico, uh, Canada. I don't think the US will be terribly interested in letting us in. I think you have to find things that the US will be interested in. I think there are things that the US are interested in. They're certainly interested in our investments, and we're interested in theirs. So I think there's a yeah. lot that we can do. I take your point. Yes, it's a disappointment. Yes, it's, Boris Johnson has failed to do what he said he was going to do, but he probably promised the wrong thing anyway, and he really should be looking at doing something else. Get the symbolism but also get the deals. OK, thank you very much indeed, David, for putting that as clearly as you have. Thank you. Well, I still insist that we've been through four wasted years. You know, some of those most senior people in the Trump administration saying to my face back in 2016, we want to do this deal. And yes, Lord Marlon can tell us about what tough negotiators they are, but it's something that actually Trump wanted to do for symbolism. It mattered to him. Well, finally, let's talk about this subject to Stephen Vaughan, who worked under President Trump as acting US trade representative. I'm very pleased, Stephen, that you're joining us here on GB News. Thank you very much for having me. You were there during that Trump period, and you were closer to this issue than I was, but my impression, every time I met President Trump, and even before he became president, 
was he was very, very keen on this symbolic linking of our two countries. Uh, he felt very strongly about it. And that actually the reason it didn't happen is the Conservative government took year after year after year of fiddling and messing around. They dropped the ball on Brexit. And I think this would have been done under a Trump administration. What say you? Well, I'm not going to um, second guess your analysis of British politics, but I, I certainly think I could tell you from the US, and I think there was certainly a lot of interest in doing a trade deal with Britain. I think there's still a lot of interest in doing a trade deal with Britain. Um, it's very funny for an American to hear us described as protectionist when we run an enormous trade deficit year after year. Um, and I think if you were to talk to the people in Australia and Canada and Korea and other countries that have trade deals with the U.S., they've been very, very happy with those deals. So I, I don't think that it's impossible to get a trade deal with America. I think uh, there's a lot of interest in it. Um, and I, I, I think Americans are still interested in it. OK, and, and Stephen, you know, one of the points about this, this channel, this station, is we make sure that both points of view get put, so you've responded uh, to what Lord Marland said earlier. But let's be frank, you know, we are now at the back of the line, aren't we, as far as this administration is concerned? I, I think it's very, you know, I think it's tricky to say how it's going to play out. It's important for your audience to understand a lot of trade policy in America gets made by the Congress as well as by the White House. And I think, from my perspective, one of the big holdups uh, really was agricultural issues. A lot of the stories in the British press about chlorinated chicken and some of the other things that were heard. Um, and, and I think that, to me, is something that the, that the UK has to really think through. Yeah, you're right. There was a very aggressive campaign um, against trade deals with America on agriculture, uh, particularly put about by those who really wanted to overturn the referendum result with the European Union and would rather that we stayed there. Um, so it's going to be some time, is it not, Stephen, before we have a trade deal between our two countries? I think we all accept that. But is the point that David Hennig made, is there a way? After all, we've reached a compromise on bourbon and whiskey. We've reached a compromise on British beef and lamb, small though that is. Is there a way that we can still do something together on financial services to make New York and London work together more smoothly? Well, I think certainly the, that's what, I mean, there are areas where the two countries can work together. They should be able to work together on intellectual property, for example. They may be able to work together on certain services issues. We share similar uh, economic interests, I think, in a lot of those areas. Um, I think the Americans on the whole will be more interested in a bigger deal. Uh, that would allow us to sell goods and things like that as opposed mm -hmm. to a smaller deal. Um, but like I said, you are the largest economy in the world, really, that we are likely to do a trade deal with. And, and I think everybody over here understands that's an extraordinary opportunity. For the United States. OK, thank you very much indeed for joining us here on GB News. Well, folks, you've heard all sides of the argument there. I'm pretty sure that Boris Johnson effectively is coming home, not just empty handed, but stabbed in the back and insulting, insulted before he even boarded the plane home. Biden is pro-EU, Biden is pro-Brussels, Biden is pro-Dublin, Biden has never, ever been pro the United Kingdom. And I think we're effectively, trade-wise, at a bit of a stalemate, which is a real disappointment, because we could have done this in the previous four years. But, hey, so, overnight, yet more stories about a European army. I have been saying for years the EU wanted its own army. I've been called all sorts 
of nasty things for doing so. But I think history is proving me right. But the question is, should we be linked to it, allied to it, or steer well clear? So, is Boris Johnson coming home from the USA trip empty-handed? Well, he may have got a little win on climate change, which I know is very dear to his heart, but on trade, on the Northern Ireland Protocol, we have got nowhere. And just before he boards to come home, Biden signs a strategic partnership on vaccines with the European Union, which is akin to a diplomatic stab in the back. But I'm asking for your reaction to all of this, and Lucia, our email, says to me, bumbling Boris needs to send Liz Truss pronto to talk to Biden. If anyone can charm the old man, it is Liz. Well, it's a form of diplomacy, I guess. Mark says, you are being miles too soft on Biden. Really? Boris is a clown who is just finding out that protectionist America and global warming, along with HS2, are going to be his noose. I don't think I've been too soft on Biden. I've been saying for weeks that he's not fit for office. Marion says, Nigel, you are certainly not too harsh. The so-called Conservatives are not at all Conservative, but more like Labour and the Lib Dems. Well, I have been hinting they're not too Conservative in many regards. David says, if it's going to be a non-starter with the USA, maybe it's time to start negotiations with China. I think we've given enough away to China already, actually, folks. Um, so I'm going to say that is a bad idea. Now, what was clear to me in my very early days as an MEP from 1999, is that this common market that we joined those years before uh, was rapidly becoming a full state. It wanted its own police force, it wanted its own independent foreign policy without anybody being able to veto it within the club, and it absolutely wants its own army, air force and navy. And whenever I try to make that argument, I was shouted down. I was treated as being some sort of liar. It's as if the Remainers in this country just didn't want to have the debate. And indeed, I did, I did a series of head-to-head -head debates in 2014 with Nick Clegg, when he was Deputy Prime Minister and leader of the Liberal Democrats, saying that, you know, I did not want us to become part of a European army. I thought it would destroy NATO and our relationship with America. Um, and, uh, you know, Clegg just did not agree with that at all. In fact, what Clegg told the country simply wasn't true. The whole point of this debate is 40 years on. 40 years ago, it was a common market. Now it's a European Union that wants an air force, an army, a navy, and wants to militarily intervene. In, in, in... This is a dangerous fantasy. <coughs> the idea that there's going to be a European air force, a European army, it's it proposed. is simply not True. Oh, the dear, problem, dear, the dear. problem with people like Nigel Farage is they, 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 they swing at windmills. They see do? conspiracies everywhere. I wouldn't do? be surprised if Nigel Farage soon tells us that the moon landing was a do? fake, that Barack Obama isn't American, that Elvis isn't dead. <laughs> so there we are. That was our Deputy Prime Minister saying that I'm a dangerous fantasist. Well, he may be right in some regards, but I wasn't when it comes to a European army. But he didn't let it go there. He carried this on for years. For years and years. Even when in Brussels I was hearing people saying we have to have a single military structure, he was even writing columns in newspapers. Uh, you know, here he is. Nigel Farage's claims about an EU army are as fictional as the vanishing £350 million, written by Nick Clegg in 2017. Well, overnight, a story in The Telegraph suggesting that the French are prepared to give up their seat at the UN Security Council so that there can be an EU representative. There is already an EU observer. 
And whilst the Elise deny that, since Afghanistan and since the weakening of NATO by, by Biden, uh, you know, the demand for a rapid reaction force, the demand for a European army has become ever stronger. And all right, you know, I, I've always said I didn't want us to be part of it. I didn't want us to wreck NATO. I didn't see how NATO and a European army could coexist together. But we are at a moment, if the Americans have turned their backs on NATO, which is, which is not impossible, we are at a point here to have a serious debate about European defence. If they are going to press ahead with this, what do we do? Because it is a big an important consideration. Well, Tobias Elwood is chair of the Defence Select Committee and a Conservative member of Parliament. Tobias, has NATO been very seriously weakened by Afghanistan? Yes, absolutely. It's very sad to see us depart from there. There was no requirement for us to pull out. There was 2,500 American troops there. It got caught up in the American domestic elections, as you've been reporting, uh, this forever war. Actually, it was messy, it was pretty corrupt, but it was holding ground. And because in order to win votes and to follow Trump's call to return ho troops home, 2,500 American troops came uh, back, were pulled out. The Americans have actually got more employees in the uh, uh, US embassy here in London than they did in Afghanistan. But it was enough to hold things to account. And we've now absented ourselves from rather a key part of the world. And of course, terrorism is now able to flourish. So it was a bad call. And to your point directly, yeah. it has left uh, NATO scratching its heads. What is its purpose? What is it there to actually do? Because the wider picture is that threats uh, are increasing. Our world is getting increasingly unstable. And we don't have protocols. We don't have a direction of travel on how to deal with a resurgent Russia, a rising China, growing terrorism. These are things which the West needs to collectively work together. Otherwise, we are divided and we then become defeated. Tobias Elwood, I understand and agree with all of those points. But I can tell you, in my years in Brussels, there were many uh, that, that, that wanted a European army because they didn't want NATO. Uh, they felt they could do it on their own. Let us assume, for the sake of this debate, that the European Union is going to push ahead with its plans for a joint force, a European army, Call it what you will. Let's say these plans advance in the wake of what has happened in Afghanistan. And it, and it seems to me that the big push is coming from the French on this. And who's to say how the electorate may react to that? But if this military force is to be created, what should we do? Should we be involved with it? I, mean, I know we're not EU members, but should we, should we involve ourselves with it? Or should we say, no, this is not the right structure not the right group of people. What we need to do is to redefine NATO and find a broader role for that. Because I just don't think that the two can coexist side by side. No, I think you're right on the latter point there. Firstly, anybody that knows anything about the military, you wouldn't have a European army as such. You would have a European military force, army, navy, air force. You've then got the new domains of cyber and space as well. So anybody pushing a European army probably are politicians that don't have perhaps a lot of exposure to what our armed forces actually do. Even in NATO, you, don't, uh, you wear, might wear a NATO emblem, but you actually are a sovereign unit that's part of a wider NATO corporation. So I, the, the nations that I've spoken to that are very close, from Denmark and so forth, the actual 
uh, politicians are not interested in working under any form of uh, EU armed force at all. They enjoy and like uh, the protocols that are already established, the training regimes that are there with NATO. What is missing with NATO is leadership. And that's where Britain needs to come in. You touched on something rather important at the moment. We are in a period of flux. You know, we don't know what to do about China in the South China Sea. I, AUKUS, I think, is interesting, but it's the Quad, which would have been a far greater, more powerful assembly. So that's Australia, the United States, Japan, and India. Then you get some real clout to deal with that neck of the woods. What a shame that we didn't leave AUKUS to be a procurement program to advance submarine capability and then invite France and Britain to join the Quad. Then you've got something that can stand up to what's going on in the South China Sea. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm all for that. I'm all for that, Tabas, but I repeat my point. Uh, you know, there are some who will see the European force as nation-states cooperating. There are others in Brussels who will try and make it a genuine European army. But leave that aside for the moment. As this European force develops, I mean, not, of course, that they're very keen on spending money, and it could be a Walter Mitty army, but as it develops, how should we engage with it? Well, I think you are jumping ahead, if I may. There's an awful lot of people who are the antithesis of you, if I can say that. You made it very clear you don't want it, and there are others yeah. which do want it. I, I sit in the middle of that. I'm the realist that has to deal with the real security threats and what we can do about it. I say directly to the EU, if you are serious about European security, you do not exclude anybody that's not in the EU but is in NATO. Britain offers a quarter of European military capability. Yeah. That's how big our hard power yeah. is. To deny us inclusion into looking after the complexities of European security, security is complete madness. We already have duplication. The Tempest, you may be familiar with, is the sixth generation successor to F-35. We're building one, France is building one. How crazy is that? To deny us a place in the Galileo constellation system a project which was Surrey Satellites, then Airbus, also madness too. European security is something that we all need is to it? participate in and not have alliances and blocs that actually end up competing against each other. To ask finally, very quickly, is it politically easier for us to engage with this as, and to sell to the British public as non-EU members than it was as EU members? I, you know, I really want to take the politics out of it. I wanted to actually go to the start in point and actually confirm... I don't, I don't think you still can. In denial about, ..still in denial about what the threats are. When you start with the threats and then work backwards from there, then you start to build the alliances that are genuinely committed to standing up to those. There is a gap in the market for leadership, if I can just end on this point. Yep. The United States, as you hinted at, are stepping back a little bit. Britain, a couple of times last century, stepped forward when others hesitate. Let's do that again. Let's create alliances that are required now to deal with the growing threats that we face. Otherwise, we're in for a couple of bumpy decades. OK. Tomas Elwood, thank you for joining us. This is going to be a huge debate going forward. It's a debate that could go on for years. Uh, you know, Tobias thinks we should engage in some way. I'm still very sceptical. What is for certain, though, is that Nick Clegg, as Deputy Prime Minister, was not telling the country the truth. He knew what the true intentions were, and that makes me pretty angry. Now, the What the Farage moment. Well, another calm day in the channel. Wind turbines, of course, not moving, but not a story we're doing tonight. And a lot of people crossing the English Channel today. A lot of boats coming, uh, lifeboats coming in to Dover, ram full of people, uh, border force vessels coming into Dover, ram full of people, and even...
even a migrant boat, spotted as far west as Beachy Head. Uh, and there's Border Force there coming into uh, Dover Harbour today. Um, yeah, as far west as Beachy Head, and that's the furthest west we've seen one of these boats. You can see these new boats, they're 36 feet, 11 metres long, and they can take 70 or 80 people. I don't know what the number will be today. It'll be many, many hundreds. That's the Dover lifeboat. It'll be many, many hundreds, and we're getting very close, very close, to exactly double the number that came in to the UK last year. It was 8,400 last year that came across the English Channel. Uh, we are, by the end of today, I would guess getting up around 16,500. And my other what the farage today is Ofcom, who on balance are a pretty good regulator, but they've decided today on language that gammon and Karen should be added to a list of offensive words um, as political labels and shouldn't be used, but they're also saying that it's wrong on air to say Ramona or Snowflake or Boomer, because somehow these are insulting terms that are offensive and close to being swear words. Well, I'm really sorry, but I don't think... I, I can see how Gammon or Karen could be, uh, seem to be, uh, identifying a particular group of people based on their age, uh, based on their sex, but I fail to see how Boomer, which refers to people born between 1945 and 1965, is offensive in any way at all, and the same with Snowflake and Ramona. Uh, and I really do think, for once, Ofcom have got this completely and utterly wrong. We've got to stop banning words. Well, my guest for Talking Pints has once or twice been ticked off uh, for what she wanted to say in terms of jokes. I'm joined by somebody who was a brilliant and funny impressionist. I'm joined by Francine Lewis. Well, tonight, tonight on Talking Pints, joining me is actress, impressionist and somebody who's been a star of Britain's Got Talent. I'm joined by Francine Lewis. Francine, welcome to Talking Pints. Welcome, Nigel. So you were kind of first introduced in a big way to the British public. Britain's Got Talent, 2013. Yeah. You enter the competition and there's millions of people who watch that and think, well, what would I do? How would I... Is it a scary thing to walk into? It is terrifying. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. And I have to say, I really didn't want to do the show, Nigel. I got approached by some researchers to come and do the show. And as exciting as it seemed at the time, it was like, I can't do that. I mean, I did a talent show back in the late 90s. It was called the Big B Talent Show, and Jonathan Ross presented it. Yep. It was a bit like Britain's Got Talent. The public voted for you and if they liked you and, and I got through. I went all the way to the finals. It was ITV, prime time. But it was never as big as Britain's Got Talent. Which, which was massive, wasn't it? Which was massive. And to be honest, I had just lost so much of my confidence from being the most confident person you would ever meet, Nigel, to a point where it was irritating. Um, <laughs> I then had my children and... I lost my confidence, you know, I became mummy, got into mummy mode and... Which is not a bad thing. Not a bad thing at all and I wouldn't no. regret it for the world because no. I saw everything from the first steps to, you know, yeah. everything. But this was a massive 
make or break for me. And I was nervous because I was a massive fan of Simon Cowell, by the way. I always had a crush on him. <laughs> I, <laughs> I absolutely adore Simon Cowell. And it was the only thing that was making me think, oh, maybe I should do it. Ah, you know, Simon you will know my name, that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, it was the best thing. So you had a great success. Done. You got all the way through to the final. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of put you in a different place. Yes. Kind of I mean, they do say, Nigel, they always say, this show changes your life. And, mm. you, and I never, ever thought that was possible. Mm. But it really, really did. But then you become someone who's well-known. And before you know it, you start being told that there are things you can't say, there mm. are jokes you can't do, and impressions, of course, are your big thing. And we'll do a few of those for yeah. you. But how difficult is it to be an entertainer, a comedian... In a world where we're... I mean, you've seen the Ofcom stuff today that we're mm. not supposed to say Snowflake or yeah. Rem Ramona oh. or whatever. But, <laughs> uh, it's getting real. but how difficult is it to say things that are funny or entertaining without causing offence or without people shouting you down? Well, to be, when I first did that in uh, 2013, I said what I wanted to say. I yeah. did what I wanted to do. And I do remember on my semi-final, there was a couple of characters they didn't want me to do. And one of them was Nadine from Girls Aloud because I was literally taking the mick out of how she spoke. She has this kind of voice and it talks like that and then you can't understand like a thing, a thing, a thing, a thing. And I did that on the show, which they really didn't want me to do. And I just did it. And Simon loved it. The whole panel loved it. All the audience roared. And they actually, she said to me, it was one of the funniest things. We're so happy. So why didn't they in. want you to do it? But too personal, or maybe it was too personal. And you know, now I think, God, some of the things I said and done on that show maybe was too personal. Like when I did Katie Price in the final, and I, I did that song, you know, um, Katie I'm Price, a glamour girl. Katie Price, by the way, is coming on Talking Pints very is shortly. She? she is not oh, just yet. Wow, no. I love it. Oh, Nigel, I do. What do you think? Oh, yes. <laughs> Well, I'll ask her when she comes on what she thought of that. <laughs> but so it's getting difficult. I mean, that was 2013, but a hell of a lot's changed. A hell of a lot's changed. From that show, you know, doing what I wanted to do, saying what I wanted to say. Mm. You know, I, I also took the mick of Cheryl Cole and, you know, where she was from and, you know, Gemma Collett. Well, I did actually yeah. do Gemma on the show at that time, but I did make a few references to Wait um, and, as I say, with Katie doing the song at the end, saying, you know, oh, how many kids have I got now? You know, and just... Which make, is funny. Which, which, to me and, you know, to other people is funny. Obviously, she wasn't impressed herself, obviously. But, you know, if you're in comedy and you're a comedian or impressionist, unfortunately, you have to, to be funny, take the mick a bit, yeah. you know? And I suppose and, taking the mickey out of people's weight now is considered to be a very difficult thing. You cannot thing. do you that. Simply can't you know, do I it. used to do Gemma Collins and put a pillow up my, my... I mean, she has lost loads of weight, <laughs> to be fair. And it isn't probably very nice. <laughs> but, you know, it was funny. And people on YouTube or people watching would, like, mm. think it was, like, the funniest thing. But, you know, that was me getting into character um, at the time. But when I went on the Christmas special, oh, my God, they wouldn't let me do hardly anything and I remember the night before everything got rewritten and I was literally so nervous thinking I'm going on there mm. you know tomorrow I'm in front of the the judges and um 
I, I've had to change my whole act because I'm not allowed to say this, I'm not allowed yeah. to say that. Yeah. And it's become really difficult for someone like me because in comedy, you should be able to say what you want. I think Rowan Atkinson has argued this point very, very strongly, yeah. that we're sort of going to kill comedy. Oh, yeah, I think I think comedy is dead now. I do really you? do. Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I'm going to be doing some live shows um, very soon. I've been doing some corporates. Obviously, it's different at the moment if I'm doing a per, like a per, someone's personal party or something like that. I feel a bit more free of what I yeah. can do Although, today. with mobile phones and people put stuff on the internet. This and... is the thing. This is the thing. And some of my jokes, even, I, I have to be so careful, you know, that I'm not going <laughs> to offend, you know. At the, at the end of it, someone's going to complain or put something on yeah, social I know. media. I know. I know. I've had this happen at private events where I've said things at private dinners, assuming that it's all amongst friends and, you know, it's out there and it... it yeah. Back. But you've also felt some of this, Francine, because, yeah. you know, you can do impressions, you can take the mickey, uh, you've taken the mickey out of the rich and the famous and some of the soap stars, and we'll come to that in a minute. Mm -hmm. But by doing that, and your profile raising, you've then had... I mean, how, how have you dealt with the level of media intrusion in your life and speculation about what you may or may not have done. I've put that really nicely, haven't yeah, I? Yeah, well, years ago, <laughs> like, when, you know, when I first started in television, and I, yeah, at that time, I, I, I did attract quite a lot of media attention because mm. I was doing The Generation Game with mm. Davidson. I mean, it was huge, time. huge show. Yeah, it was yeah. every Saturday night on BBC yeah. One. How was Jim to work with? Oh, Jim. Jim's hilarious. I mean, I, I know not a lot of people like him. He's very conscious. Oh, he's filling up theatres all around oh, the country. He's one of the funniest people yeah. when he's in front of an audience. When there isn't, you know, isn't an audience, he's like a lot of comedians. Um, I hate to say the word depressed, but, <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people who are funny <sighs> all the time, when they're, when they're not in Quite front of difficult an audience, to be funny all the time, though, isn't it? It's very difficult. And I think when people think that's what you do and know what yeah. you do, yeah. they expect you to be constantly telling jokes. Yeah, at least with me, they just want an argument. That's easy. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but you, you know, you came out of the spotlight yourself, didn't you? Yes. You know, had things written about you, said about you. How did you yeah. cope? How did you well, cope with you that? The thing is with me, Nigel, as well, I think for female, and again, it's so hard, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but females... If they're in the, the comedy right. you're, you're, world... You're, you're already talking to me over a drink. You exactly, we're just having a drink, it's fine. <laughs> when females are in comedy, you're supposed to look a certain way. Mm -hmm. OK? So I've always had this thing of, oh, you should be in trousers, oh, you should, you know, you, maybe you'd be funny if you put on a bit of weight, or maybe, you, you know, if you looked a certain way. Um, but f for me... I remember when I was on Britain's Got Talent the first time, people said to me, I really remember you because when you walked out on the stage in this little cute dress and all glamorous, I thought you were going to sing and then mm. you came out with one of these voices, dot con or whatever, and yeah. I nearly choked on my pizza. So I kind of like that <laughs> as well because it makes you a bit more memorable that you're not just... You know, a comedian that looks a certain yeah. way because obviously people like Joe Brand and they do look funny and it's part of their appeal because that's why they're so successful. But yes, yeah, so, so I feel sometimes it can be something that goes against me, should yeah, I? Yeah, it probably does. Uh, and also with females, I have to say to you, Nigel, without mentioning any names, um, there was a couple of really big impression shows that the producers um, and the actual star of the show at the time wanted me on as the impressionist. And um, I was told that the female impressionist didn't want me on the show. Uh, and, wow. this has been, and this is why whenever people say, well, women should support women, my whole life, my whole career, 
It's always gone against me. Women have never, ever supported it. So I have not had the opportunity to do so many primetime um, TV shows. Uh, again, I don't want to mention the names of these people, but they have categorically said, I don't want Francine Lewis on the show. Mm. And I'm sorry well, to say it, but it's competition. No, but there are barriers Jessica. in all things. In life. Now, what I do notice about the impressions, your favourite impressions, the ones you're best known for, is you've really gone for the soaps in a big way. Yes. You've really gone for Corrie yes. and EastEnders, and I guess that's because they've got these huge audiences, yeah. and so you do, the, you do the impressions of them, and a lot more people will know exactly who these people are. Which is the best show for impressions? Is it Corrie or is it EastEnders? Oh, I'd say both. I mean, I started off... I was a big fan of the American soaps. Yep. So I started off doing all the Dallas and Dynasty when I was really, really little. I was just obsessed with glamour and... So glitz. were you doing impressions as a kid? Six years old. I think as soon as I started talking, I was never me. I was just always <laughs> someone else. I was like this six-year-old going, Hell, Blake, how dare you come barging into my office giving me orders? <laughs> Don't you realise I'm Alexis Morel, Carrington, Colby Dexter? I was obsessed with Joan Collins. She's wonderful. Oh. What a great human being she is as well, actually. Absolutely Amazing. love her. Yeah. And I'll tell you who another great human being is that I did an impression of, who's not here, no longer here, unfortunately, is Barbara Windsor. Mm. I met her a few times. She yeah. was the yeah. sweetest, most yeah. beautiful person. She loved it. She found it a compliment. Oh, darling. <laughs> she was amazing. <laughs> and yet there's a lot of people I do now, because I do all the reality stars. I have to do what's on TV, basically, yeah. Nigel, and I do yeah. a lot. I'm known to do all the, the reality people, like from TOWIE, Love Island. Some of them... I can't go to certain parties. Or I, I, I turned down a, a, a party last week because I knew certain ones were in there and I was nervous. Isn't that ridiculous? <laughs> it's awful. But, and, you know, one thing about me, I've been very fortunate in my career that I've never really been trolled. You know, I've only had lots mm. of love. You know, I open my DMs and it's only lovely things that people were saying. Well, let's hope GB News doesn't change that. I'm sure I it know, won't. I I'm know. sure it won't. <laughs> now, I, you know, one of my favourite characters in, in Coronation Street, been there a long, long time, uh, and often very angst-ridden through a difficult personal life, is, of course, Deirdre. So let, let's, let's have a bit of Deirdre, please. Trace again! Trace again! I remember just when I was doing Deirdre, it was always <laughs> like the neck would just pop. Um, she was an amazing character. And, of course, Liz MacDonald, who... I don't know what to do. Al Jim, Andy, Steve... And, of course, my favourite, Audrey, my best friend. Honestly, Nigel, honestly, that skill. She's been married more times than I can even think of having my ears on. I just love them all, though. Yeah, honestly. I can imagine in Manchester and in the northern clubs, this would be amazingly popular. Yeah. So what audiences do you speak to? Do you speak... I mean, what are you doing now? Are you, are you going to go back on the stage or... What are you going to do next? Well, I'm... You've got a, this ability to I'm do I'm doing it. a lot of corporates at the moment because, yep. obviously, with the whole COVID, I, I did do a lot of virtual work. Um, so I'm going back... But if I'm being totally honest, it's not something I really enjoy. Um, I love television. Okay. I love the cameras. I love the whole aspect of TV. So, for me, I think, you know, t television's where I want to be. 
Um, and, you know, maybe some acting. I mean, I've done it in the past. I'd have to go back to doing a bit of acting. I think with the impression thing, it's, it's something that's in or out. Yeah. It's something that goes in fashion and comes out of fashion. I, so don't, I, think don't, it, I don't think it ever goes away completely. It, um, no, and people and love it, Nigel. People <coughs> love yeah. impressions because it does, it brings you up. And you've got a, you've got a huge repertoire. Huge repertoire. Well, thank you. Thank you. For coming on Talking Pints. That was Francine Lewis. Uh, and she's pretty good, isn't she? <laughs>Well, we're coming towards the end of the show. It's time for that last segment. Yep, you know what it is. It's Barrage the Farage, where you send your questions in, and I do not get previous sight of them. I have to say, last night, a couple were very, very difficult. Patricia asks me, after watching Prime Minister's questions today, would you sack Keir Starmer in favour of Angela Rader? She was feisty, loud, showing determination, fired many questions and got herself heard. Oh, Angela Rayner gets herself heard. Don't be in any doubt about that. I just wonder, and I'm trying to be as objective here as I can, I just wonder whether the Angela Rayner style isn't just a bit too aggressive. Now, Keir Starmer, I mean, is so laid back, he might as well be asleep at times, but I just wonder whether Rayner is a bit too attack dog. Either way, the Labour Party has a terrible problem. It doesn't know what it is. Brexit has absolutely poleaxed the party. So, for the minute, uh, I'm not sure either of them could really solve Labour's problems. And as the Labour conference is approaching, you know, we can now see the old left, John McDonnell overnight, giving Starmer a hard time. Some of the trade unions giving Starmer a hard time. The new boss of Unite not even going to the Labour Party conference. Labour has a fundamental split between the moderates and the hard left. And for the moment, I, I don't see anybody that can heal that rift. Mark on Twitter asks me, when can we expect to see a Trump interview with you? I think he will run again, and maybe at that point we do a trade deal, do you think? Trump in the White House would do a trade deal. And I can tell you this, even if he thought that we would get more out of it than the USA, Trump would do a deal with this country, because you may dislike Trump, you may like Trump, that's not the point. He is a pro-British, he was a pro-British president. Biden simply is not. So, uh, you know, I haven't been to America now for months. I've not been able to because, of course, there's been a travel ban. It looks like, with the middle of November, uh, we'll be able to get back in to America. And hopefully, I'll do some interviews with some very interesting American characters when I'm over there.